Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and we just thank you for the sweet opportunity is to gather as your people, united in Christ, and to consider the life that you call us to. I'm glad that through song, we can express that we're sinners and that we're desperately needy. I pray this morning you would help us to see how you've given us the gift of each other to to work through those kinds of things. Lord, particularly I want to pray for a couple of things this morning. I pray for um, Grace Church, uh, for Steve and Karen Lawson. I pray for their marriage. I pray that they're enjoying you, walking well together. I pray that he is loving his church as he is spending and being spent gladly on the souls of your children. I pray that you would grow that church in whatever way you see fit for your glory. Lord, I pray for the Hall family this morning as they just welcomed a new little baby into the world just minutes ago. And I pray that you would bless them, bless their time. Pray for recovery for Ashley. Lord, I pray this morning for our time in the Word that it would be free from burdening cares that would distract us from the Word. And I pray this morning that rather than leaving those cares at the door, that we would just humbly lay them at the foot of the cross and that you would allow us to listen, to see what your Word has to say, and that by the work of the Spirit we could respond obediently. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Matthew 5, please. Welcome to part 7. Is that light hitting me more in the chest than it is my face? Because I'm warm in this area here. (laughs) Should I scoot up? Should I preach like this? Would that help? Um, We'll try not to fall here. Um, is that better? Welcome to part seven of our month and a half or month and three quarters or month and five eighths of conflict. Some sermons are hold on tight because we're about to doctrinally and theologically plumb the depths type of sermons. This is not one of those. That's not our case today. Today's sermon is largely a stir you up by way of reminder and encourage you to apply what you've heard kind of sermon. Through the conflict series, we have learned some basic truths that when applied provide us with a lot of opportunity when conflict arises. First, I hope that we've successfully shattered the mistaken assumption that for a relationship to be a good relationship, there can never be any conflict. I think what we've learned is that conflict is inevitable. However, As believers, we're called to make sure we don't leave conflict unresolved. Why is this? Well, because the message we've been given is that in Christ, there's hope, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So if we don't forgive and reconcile others, it will be difficult for us to convince others that Jesus, in fact, forgives and reconciles. It gets in the way of the message. We've learned that when conflict arises, it's an opportunity for many things. Over the last seven, eight weeks, we realize it's an opportunity for God's glory. It's an opportunity to serve others. It's an opportunity to grow to be like Christ. It's an opportunity for confession and for forgiveness. Taking those things into account, it would appear that God uses conflict regularly as a means of our sanctification, 
being made Christ-like. He uses conflict for something that important, an opportunity for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So what I want us to consider this morning, what happens when we are conformed to the image of Christ through conflict? That's what we're going to look at this morning. What happens when we are conformed to the image of Christ through conflict? Matthew 5, we're going to look at verse 9 particularly. This is a section called the Beatitudes, and in verse 9, Jesus, in explaining his earthly ministry and the forward movement of his kingdom on earth as it will be eternally, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, I wanted to know what kind of peace was being spoken of here, because we, it's sort of a relative term in our culture, and we can be talking about, is it the absence of conflict? Is it no war? Is it, is it just between us and God? Is it between us and other people? And if you look at the word study, what you find is that the peace that is being made in this verse is the harmonious relationship between people. The harmonious relationship between people. Now, that phrase alone may sound like a fable to some of you, but it, it's possible, and it is, in fact, achievable but only in Christ. The harmonious relationship between people. It refers to order and quietness in the church. Order and quietness in the church. Jesus is saying that there's not just a moment of blessing when we make peace, but rather when we live the life of the peacemaker, as the ESV notes, it says, more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness, like that was nice, that felt good um, for a moment, Rather than that, it's a state of well-being and a relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. So how are we responding to Jesus' ministry as peacemakers? That's my question. We are peacemakers. We're blessed by a joyful state of well-being if we respond to Jesus' ministry. So what are we responding to? What is it in Jesus' ministry that would encourage us to be peacemakers? Turn over to John 17. Like I said, this is largely a stir you up by way of reminder sermon. You've heard these things before. I'm telling you nothing new. But by God's design, we are to stir one another by way of reminder. We have to hear things again and again because we'll step off into areas that are unfaithful when we know what the faithful area is. So I'm asking the question, what are we responding to in Jesus' ministry that would encourage us to be peacemakers? In John 17, verse 20, it says this. Jesus is praying what's called, they refer to it as the high priestly prayer. And he's talking to God, and he, there's many, many details that show what he is achieving on earth and what he aims to accomplish through his people. And he says, I do not ask for these only, verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be one, may be in us, so that, that's an important so that, the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Again, so that... The world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Christ was a peacemaker, and his intention was not only to reconcile his children to himself and to God, 
but also to each other. That's where we get our motivation and our encouragement to go be peacemakers. That's the part of Christ's ministry that we're responding to as peacemakers. Christ was a peacemaker, and his intention was not only to reconcile his children to himself and God, but also to each other. Our oneness is preserved through reconciliation and peacemaking. And in verse 23, we see that that oneness is a means by which the world may know that God sent Jesus to love sinners the same way that God has loved Jesus. That actually means that people can look at our relationships and see the truth of Jesus on display. That means that an unbelieving world, outside looking in, looking at the church, looking at the culture of the church, looking at the relationships of the people within the church, they can, from the outside looking in, they can say, I see truth about Jesus in the way they live with each other, the way they walk with each other, and their relationships with each other. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. What is a pillar and buttress? The pillar is the thing that goes like this, and the buttress is the thing that goes like this. Is that clear? Is everyone completely clear on what I'm talking about, even if we're not architecture majors? Okay, the pillar holds up the roof, right? The buttress helps to hold up the roof too. It's like reinforced. So usually, sometimes they call this a flying buttress, just if you want to write flying buttress in your notes, that's what they call it sometimes. Um, Seems to come up in every sermon. Um, So anyway, you have a pillar and you have a buttress. Usually those are made up of concrete and like steel reinforced rebar. You don't want to make the pillar and buttress of like uh, something weak, something that um, could crumble, something that is malleable. You want something that is strong, like concrete and steel rebar. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So what are we holding up in this pillar and buttress form? What we're holding up is truth. That means we have to make sure whatever this support is right here is very, very strong because if it's not, what falls to the ground and crumbles is truth. And that's not good for people of truth who serve the God of truth. So the pillar and buttress of the truth is what we're called to be. Christ says that we will be known by our love for one another. I would offer that our pillar and our buttress are comprised largely of relationships that are steadfast and enduring when the world would call it quits. Steadfast and enduring when the world would call it quits. And and to say it another way, our form of the concrete and the rebar that hold up truth is healthy relationships that we're working on together. Not just individually, not just in pockets, not in cliques, but together. So what I hope that we can see from our large amount of time considering how we respond to conflict is that our opportunity is not limited only to the conflict that we find ourselves in with others. What we're encouraging you to do this morning is to realize that if we're truly following the example of Christ, we must also be peacemakers when we see conflict between other people. Maybe we're not involved in the conflict, but we're called to be peacemakers. And it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. So we must not allow the church, a people, not a building, to be made up of divided, splintered, and unreconciled relationships. In fact, one could offer that wrongly referring to the church as a building could have horribly contributed to neglected relationships, where we quit focusing on each other and we focus on things that are less important. So God encourages us, he expects us to focus on each other. As we are living our lives, focusing on him, Christ central in all things. If Christ is central in all things, we will not neglect each other, and we will not neglect our relationships, and we won't allow others in the church to do it either. So I want us to consider two questions this morning. What does it mean to make peace between two other people? 
Question one, what does it mean to make peace between two other people? And question two, what does it mean to be blessed in doing so? Blessed are the peacemakers. What does it mean to be blessed in doing so? I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. What does it mean to make peace between two other people? I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Hear, hear the tone of what Paul is saying here. Like when someone says, how dare you? You're paying attention because clearly they're passionate about what they're talking about. How dare you? He's saying, do you dare go to the law? To those who are not believing, as opposed to going to the saints when you have grievances with each other? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and all that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already, already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Last week we considered that Paul surrendered some of his rights for the sake of continuing to be able to minister to the very difficult church in Corinth. And this week we can rejoice in the fact that God gave Paul such perseverance because we have before us the fruit and the guidance from his patient instruction. So what do we have? Well, first I want us to consider what Paul is all riled up about. What is Paul riled up? Why is he using language like, how dare you? What's he riled up about? Well, it is not the fact that they have grievances with each other. That does not surprise Paul. What is surprising is what they're doing with their grievances. They're taking them before unbelievers to get assistance. By not settling their differences in-house, they are shamed. This is what the pastor said. Shamed, defeated, wrong, and they're defrauding each other. That's the result of not settling your differences in-house. Shamed, defeated, wrong, and you are in fact defrauding one another. For the church, the sad reality when this happens is that our witness is damaged. We've misrepresented Jesus and we've misrepresented what he's called us to when we fail to resolve our differences within the church. 1 Corinthians 14 says that our God is a God of peace, not of confusion. Our God is a God of peace, not of confusion. Unreconciled conflict misrepresents God because a lack of peace breeds confusion. Do y'all see that? He's a God of peace, 
not a God of confusion. Unreconciled conflict breeds confusion because there's a lack of peace. Onlookers will say, they're supposed to be about forgiveness. They're supposed to be about reconciliation. I'm confused. I hear what they're saying to me about Jesus, but they treat each other otherwise. I'm confused, and our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. From the get-go, here in the early church in Corinth, Christians have, had, have apparently had a problem responding faithfully to the two main causes of conflict. We've talked about this before. What are the two main causes of conflict? Well, one, sin. Maybe it's my sin, maybe it's someone else's sin, maybe it's both of our sin, but the main cause of conflict is sin. The other is misunderstanding, or what we could call different beliefs within the same faith, and people are butting heads. And the church has regularly, just kind of from the get-go, nothing new under the sun, had a hard time reconciling, what do we do when someone sins or when I sin, and what do we do when we have different beliefs in the same faith, and there's, there's misunderstanding. This is the reason that Paul is admonishing the Corinthians. So what would be better? What would be better than taking your issues to unbelievers to help with resolution? What would be better? It's always annoying when someone addresses a problem without offering a solution. Thankfully, Paul offers a solution in verse 5. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Is there not a small group shepherd or a deacon or a friend in the church? Is there not a Bill Ruth, or a Morris Bean, or a Terry Sadler, or a Clay Petzold who can help you guys to resolve your conflict? What Paul is doing here is he's conditioning the church to be ever ready in two particular areas. First, if you have a conflict between you and another person that y'all are not having success in resolving, Find someone wise within the church that can help you work through it. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, care enough about the relationship where two people at odds can say, we're both sinners, we both love Jesus, we're certainly at odds, we're not getting really past some of our issues, but I care enough about the gospel, I care enough about the health of the church to say, you know what, let's find someone wise that can help us work through this. That's the first thing Paul's trying to condition the church to do. Because if we're left to our own devices, what do we usually do? Well, I don't like you and you don't like me. I'm going to take my ball and I'm going home. We're going to go different directions. We act like children even though we're not. And so Paul's saying, look... If y'all are at odds, love Jesus enough, care enough about the beauty of the bride, care enough about what you've been called to to say, hey, can we at least agree to find someone wise to help us work through this? That would be really beneficial. Like, I want y'all to hear that because some of y'all need to do that today. Some of y'all might be at odds with someone and you're just spinning your wheels and things aren't right and you're thinking, man, it seems hopeless. It's not hopeless. God gave us the church God gave us wise men and women who can help us to work through our issues. And you may need to make that phone call today and say, hey, we need help. It could be means of your sanctification. It could be good for the glory of God. And it could be a means by which God makes you more like Christ. And people will look on and say, that is sweet. That is savory. The second thing that Paul is conditioning the church to is if you see people within the body who are at odds with one another. So if they haven't made that step to ask for help, you don't, you're not, your hands aren't tied. Isn't that frustrating when you see people who are at odds and you just feel like your hands are tied? And you're like, oh, I just, I hate that. I just hate it. You don't have to stay there. Insert yourself into their problem. 
lovingly. What that means is that Paul is saying, if you see people within the body who are at odds with one another and they're not having success in resolving a conflict, you need to stand ready to help them. You need to step in to be a peacemaker. Not a told you so, let me wave my magic wand over your problem because I'm better than both of you thing, but to be a peacemaker, to humbly point them to Jesus because they're too focused on each other. That sounds easy enough, right? But what, what usually gets in the way of peacemaking? What usually gets in the way of peacemaking? If you see others in unresolved conflict and your gut says, that's not my business, I would ask you to check your gut. If it's not your business, then whose business is it? That's what Paul's asking the church in Corinth. If it's not your business, then whose business is it? It's necessary to insert myself in your business. Um, sorry. Movie quote, baby mama, don't worry about it. Um, it's not your business, then whose business is it? That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church is this. He's saying... If we as a church are known by the way we treat each other, then of course it's my business. You see what Paul's saying there? If we're known by our love for one another, if we're known by the way that we treat each other, if people look in and they know that we're Christians because of the way that we are towards each other, then yes, it's my business if you're not acting right towards each other, if you're not lovingly putting Christ first and you're putting yourselves first. So he's saying yes, it is necessary. It is my business. I will step in and I will do my best to make peace between the two of you because it really, really matters. When you see other, well, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So when you see others at odds, what you're seeing is a ministry opportunity, not an inconvenience, not a frustrating thing only, not something that's new and crazy, but what you're seeing is a ministry opportunity and really an everyday, normal, common occurrence ministry opportunity, an opportunity to help others either embrace their God-given diversity or confess and forgive sin where it's needed. Why are those our only two options? Well, because injustice is not an option. Reconciliation is the only option. Sweeping it under the rug is not an option. Bitterness is not an option. Division is not an option. Reconciliation is our only option, and God in Christ has given us all that we need to achieve it. Faithfulness is never an impossibility. Anytime you find yourself saying, I know what's faithful, but it's impossible, just, just tell yourself, okay, that's a lie that's not coming from Jesus. Faithfulness is never an impossibility. Romans 14, 9, don't turn there, but it makes a statement in the middle of a circumstance where there are people with distinct differences. They're known as Jew and Gentile. The early church was made up of people who were proclaiming to be Christians, followers of Jesus. Some of those people were Jews. Some of those people were Gentiles. They were very, very different. So it's like, hey, we're all of the faith, but when we sit down at the table together, we got some serious differences, and how do we make sure we don't kill each other and throw food and get angry with each other? So what do we do? Jew and Gentile were very different. So in Romans 14, there's a statement that falls in the middle of a circumstance where there are people with distinct differences, very distinct differences, all of which could at some point amount to a really significant conflict, a really significant conflict. And Paul, again, shares this encouragement. He says this, listen closely. 
let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue, active word, what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Pursuit is active, not passive. That means that we're to be looking for opportunities to make peace and we're to be looking for opportunities to build others up. So if you're too focused on yourself to do that, repent. Because we're to be actively looking for opportunities to pursue peace, actively looking for opportunities to build other people up. According to Ephesians 4, unity is a gift that we have in Christ. It's a gift. Because of this gift, we are to pursue peace. Peace must be pursued. We have this gift, but the gift doesn't negate what we're supposed to pursue. We're to exert our will on a problem and say, by God, in Christ, through faith, I will pursue peace because of the gift, not neglect it because of the gift. Faithfulness is never an impossibility. Peace must be pursued. And here's the kicker for me. Some of y'all are thinking, man, that'd be good, but it just sounds miserable. Really? All these problems? I want to get involved in more problems. That's what you're telling me. I'm telling you, y'all need to be involved in more differences, more arguments. You need to, if you see people arguing, run to them. That's, that's what we're seeing from the text, I think, this morning. That's the kicker. There's joy in it. It's hard to believe. Some of you really, really hate conflict. I know it. I've heard you talk about it. Some of you really hate conflict. You'll do anything you can to stay out of its way, to run from it, to duck, close your eyes. Some of you hear or see people arguing, and your first instinct is to find a hole, crawl into it, cover your ears, la, 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 and just kind of hum until it's over. Get in the fetal position until it stops. The idea of inserting yourself into someone else's problem when you already have plenty of your own issues can be a miserable notion for many of us. I've got my own issues. It could be miserable to think about embracing others in such a manner. But remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed, blessed are peacemakers. Is Jesus a liar? No. So how does it work? Happy, not just momentarily, but as a general state of well-being. Some of us long for happiness. When I mention happy or joy, some of y'all sitting there are like, that is a distant concept to me. Some of us have to battle seriously against depression. Some of us have to battle seriously against sorrow and sullenness and discontentment and gloom. And often we will use this challenge of what feels like a lack of joy to excuse us or to allow us to shy away from relational things like peacemaking. We tell ourselves lies that go something like this. I'm just not in a good place right now. I'm not, I'm not in a place where I can be helpful. It's not a good time. Who am I to think that I could provide any help? But I want you to hear Philippians 2, 4, loud and clear. In fact, go ahead and turn there. Philippians 2, Verse 4, it says this. 
probably not a new verse. So you, you probably heard it a lot, and we need to hear it again. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is a command on the life of the believer. This is what I want us to see here. This is not a suggestion. This is not just an encouragement. This is a command, and it's not conditional. God is commanding us to look to the interests of others, and God does not say, hey, once you get your life straight, once you rid your life of all conflict and problems and sin, then you might consider looking to the interests of others. That's a ridiculous notion. We are sinners desperately in need of Jesus all day, every day. It is only by the work of the Spirit that we could do anything at all in faith. We're sinners brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. From the get-go, all have fallen short of the glory of God and desperately need Jesus. This is not a suggestion. It's a command, and it is not conditional on you having your stuff together. The point is, none of us have our stuff together, so we really, really need each other. But what about joy? You might be thinking, uh-uh, you said happy. You said joy, blessed. What about that? So let's move to our second question. What does it mean to be blessed in peacemaking? Turn to Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58. As you're turning there, Isaiah 58, as you're turning there, I want you to hear this. I want you to know that there is really, actually, truly, God-given joy in helping other people. That's not something that pastors and leaders try to say to get their churches to do stuff. It's not like, hey kids, clean up your room. It'll make you happy. You'll have a sense of accomplishment. You did something good. Why don't you wash the car when you're done? That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about a very real... God-given joy that comes from helping other people. Too many of us wrongly disqualify ourselves from helping others because we think that we aren't ready or we can't do it with the right attitude or we have to get all of our stuff straight before we could consider such an endeavor. And I want you all to be encouraged by the sweet encouragement that's in verse 10 of Isaiah 58. Look at Isaiah 58 verse 10. It says this, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. I feel like I just got to share some really good news with people who battle against oppression and darkness and sullenness and gloom. Hear it again. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. For me, this is a sweet encouragement. In my darkness and in my gloom, I can pour myself out to help other people, and God will do something with the gloom. 
You hear that? In my darkness and in my gloom, I can pour myself out for other people, and God will do something with the gloom. I can battle depression by helping other people. I don't have to wait until I fixed depression to help other people. I can battle depression by helping other people. And what that means is that I can fight against sorrow and sadness by being a peacemaker. Please hear that. I can fight against sorrow and sadness by being a peacemaker. That's what it means when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll turn your light, they'll turn your darkness to light. The gloom will be as the noonday. Blessed are the peacemakers. James 3.18 says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You hear that active word of pursue what makes for peace. And then Proverbs 12.20, you might write it in your notes and go look at it in your devotions this week. Proverbs 12.20 says that those who plan peace have joy. Those who plan peace have joy. Peacemaking is a sweet opportunity and a privilege that the believer has every day. I want to encourage us to be ready for this because this is not the kind of thing where it's like, okay, everybody, every couple years there's an opportunity and you got to make the most of it because it only comes by every now and again. Peacemaking is an opportunity we have every day. Conflict is not hard to find. We don't have to go, hard, go far to find conflict. And when we do, when we see conflict, we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. You're not the problem fixer. Jesus is. So when we see conflict, we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We have a very real-life example in front of us where we can go to someone and we can say, no matter how stark your differences, no matter how different you are, your thought processes, your personality, your character, your background, your upbringing, think Jew and Gentile. No matter how different you are and how at odds you are with each other because of your differences, if undeserving sinners can be reconciled to God, then the two of you can be reconciled to each other. That's how the gospel just invades this. That's how we are equipped with some serious goods to be peacemakers. No matter how different you are, if undeserving sinners can be reconciled to the living God who is perfect, lacking in nothing, never to be improved upon, then the two of you can certainly be reconciled to each other. Because of the finished work of the cross, we have everything that we need to treat one another the way that God has treated us and to help one another treat each other the way that God has treated us. As we move into the Lord's Supper, I'd like to share a parable with you. Turn to Matthew 25. Band, go ahead and make your way up as I read. Matthew 25, we're going to start in verse 14. And there's a, there's a warning and there's an encouragement in these verses. And as I read this parable... I want you to think about what you're doing with what you hear from this pulpit. Hear me. As I read this parable, I want you to think about what you're doing with what you hear from this pulpit, and I want you to think about what you're doing with what you hear in your small groups 
And I want you to think about what you are doing with any truth that the Holy Spirit chooses to reveal to you in any manner. What are we doing with that? In Matthew 25, Jesus is explaining what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's saying, this is what I'm about. I am the king of this kingdom. And as we're moving forward, I want you to know this. So this is what Jesus is saying his kingdom is about and how we are to respond. And Listen to what he says in verse 14. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. I want you to focus on the word entrusted. You have been entrusted with truth by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the work of God. And he's saying, so what are you going to do with that with which you've been entrusted? To one, he gave five talents. To another, two, and to another, one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, also, and he said also, the one who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And listen to what it says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the obvious thing here is, I don't want us to be worthless servants who don't do anything with what God has given us. So as we take this supper, I want us to do so with an encouragement and with a warning. The warning is that it is unfaithful, and it is slothful, and it is wicked to take what the Lord has given to us and then do nothing with it. It is unfaithful and it is slothful and it is wicked to sit here week after week after week and to go to small groups and to have family devotionals and do nothing with what the Lord has shown us. Unfaithful, 
slothful, and wicked. That's the warning that I want us to heed as we take this supper and consider what the body and the blood of Jesus means to us. The encouragement is sweet. The encouragement is that when we are doers of the word and not hearers only, when we really walk in what the Lord has revealed and when we take all that the Lord has shown us about resolving conflict and communicating the gospel, and when we truly pursue what makes for peace, when we truly pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding, we are indeed blessed. What does it say? Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Who's the, wor- who's the one speaking those words? A holy, perfect God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Could there be anything sweeter to hear in all of your life? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Enter into the joy of your master. Peacemakers are abundantly blessed as they enter into the joy of their master. And this is only made possible by the finished work of Christ. So what I want us to do is we're going to worship in song, but I want us to hold on to the supper. And I want you to pray, and I want you to ask God to, by the work of the Spirit, show you areas where you need to be faithful where you need to not sit on what you know, but you need to apply it and pursue what makes for peace and pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding. And then after we sing, I'm gonna come, we're gonna take the supper and I want us to do faithfully. This is a supper of fidelity. And what that means is that when we take this, we are not fast and loose with what God has called us to do. When we take this, we are saying we are children of God, completely dependent upon the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will do what he tells us to do. We will obey. We will be faithful. It's not an impossibility because we're sinners. He knows the sin problem. And he provided himself so that this is not an impossibility. So as we sing, consider both the warning and the encouragement. One of the privileges and joys of salvation is that once we know about forgiveness and once we know where it's found and once we know that we've been equipped for something wonderful, we don't have to keep it a secret. We, we move in it. Uh, we share it with others. And so um, I want to encourage us to take the supper humbly, very thankful for the finished work of Christ. Take and eat. Drink. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in worship, as we give of our tithes and offerings, I pray that we would do so wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray that you would continue by the work of your spirit to encourage your people in truth. Help us not to sit on the truths that we have received from you over the course of years, but help us to to move in them, to lean forward, to be good and faithful servants with that which you have entrusted to us. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.